Turn in your Bibles to the book of Ruth once again, Ruth chapter 2, page 283 if you're using one of the church pew Bibles. Ruth chapter 2. We're going to read uh, the entire chapter, so let's give our attention to the reading of God's Word, remembering that uh, our God speaks to us in story. Let's, uh, let's hear it with uh, due attention. Beginning in verse 1. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please, let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. And she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes, that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. And how you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done. And a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants." And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed to her roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also pull out some from the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today, and where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our 
redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, besides, he said to me, you shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law. Well, I wonder who you'd say is the main character of the book of Ruth. It's actually a important question to answer correctly if we're ever going to understand the message of the book of Ruth. Who's the main character? Ruth, maybe. Uh, after all, the book is named after her. Uh, or maybe Naomi, who takes center stage in chapter 1. Or maybe you'd say Boaz, who appears on the stage here in chapter 2, and through whom many of the tensions of this family story will be resolved. But actually, Ruth, Naomi, and Boaz, none of them uh, are the main characters in the book of Ruth. The, the main character in the book of Ruth is the only character who never speaks. He's constantly there. He's, he's in the background uh, throughout. And as I'm sure you're guessing at this point, the main character of the book of Ruth is the Lord God himself. And the author of Ruth points us to him and with, with subtle hints over and over and over again throughout the, the narrative. And so if we read this merely as, you know, a sweet developing romance between Boaz and Ruth, we're going to misread this story. If we read this as a tale of morality about good and bad decisions and the consequences of the decisions that we make, we're going to miss the message of the book of Ruth. But if we follow the stories of Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz as artfully designed and subtly traced for us as the handiwork of God himself so that you learn to see God at work in the lives of this broken family, then you may also learn to begin to see him at work in your own life. The, the author of Ruth wants us to see God at work in the ordinary and mundane details of life, governing all of his creatures and all their actions. So trace the workmanship of God in the ordinary and even apparently random details of this story because it's precisely there in those very same details that we see God's fingerprints in our own lives. And so a major lesson in the book of Ruth is that God is not just the main character of this story before us. A major lesson of the book of Ruth is that God is the main character of your life. For from him and through him and to him are all things. You and I are for him. And so God is the main character in, in the book of Ruth. And as we look at Ruth chapter 2, we're, go we're going to see this morning three lessons about God's ways, his works. And the first of them have to do with the providence of God, the providence of God in verses 1 through 3. Now, things have gone tragically wrong for this family. Naomi's husband and her two sons are buried in Moabite graves. Her one daughter-in-law, Orpah, has kissed her and turned back and gone back to her foreign gods. 
And now Naomi and Ruth are left destitute and extremely vulnerable. And while Ruth has, even as a new believer, responded to these sufferings and losses in faith, Naomi, we've seen, is filled with bitterness. So (coughs) Ruth is converted, comes to trust in the God of Israel, but Naomi herself, a believer, is filled with bitterness. And yet, as we saw at the end of chapter 1, and now as we see at the beginning of chapter 2, there are notes of hope sounding above and beyond this little family's sufferings. And so the first that we've, we've already seen is in chapter 1, verse 22, and we're told that Naomi and Ruth returned to Bethlehem at the time of the barley harvest. And the second note of hope is at the beginning of chapter 2 in verse 1, where we read, Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech. That first note of hope doesn't simply tell us the time of the year when Naomi and Ruth returned to Judah, particularly to Bethlehem. But rather, it's telling us that they returned to the land when God had visited his people in mercy. You remember that famine in the land of Israel during this particular time in redemptive history was a covenant curse for Israel's waywardness. It was God's megaphone calling Israel back from her sin to return to the Lord and repentance. And now the Lord has come to his people in mercy and, and uh, there's food once again And there seems to be a spiritual awakening of sorts going on among the people. There's evidence of that in uh, in verse 4 with Boaz's interaction with his workmen. Uh, When he comes to the field, he says, the Lord be with you. And they respond and say, the Lord bless you. Now, a typical greeting today, you know, hey, how are you? And that day it would have been, you know, shalom. But that's not what they say. Instead, they're, they're echoing the words of the Aaronic benediction in Numbers chapter 6. Here are these hardworking men, farmers, calloused hands. And what are they doing? They're quoting scripture to one another in the ordinary business of a day's labor. So the beginning of the barley harvest seems to signal the beginning of some, some degree of spiritual vitality in the life of God's people at this point. So this is the <coughs> first hopeful note as Naomi and Ruth return. Uh, the second note, though, of hope tells us that although Naomi cannot see a future for herself and for Ruth, that nevertheless things are already beginning to fall into place. Now remember... Uh, Naomi tried to send Orpah and Ruth away, saying, Why will you come with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that, uh, that, I, that they may become your husband? She was referring to the, the Leveret marriage laws from the book of Deuteronomy, which said it was the responsibility of uh, a deceased man's brother or near relative to, to marry the widow, to provide for her, to provide family descendants, and to secure the family land within the land of promise. And And uh, Naomi was saying to them, there's no hope of that for for any of you. But as it turns out, verse 1 is telling us, there is one who stands in the legal position to fulfill the obligations of leveret marriage. There is a near relative 
who can replace Ruth's dead husband and carry on the family line and preserve the, the family's place in the land. Now, that's what the story is hinting at here. So we, we are being allowed to see something that Naomi and Ruth cannot yet see for themselves. And remember Naomi's complaint. Remember the condition of her heart at this point. She said, I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. The Lord has dealt bitterly with me, Naomi said. That was her reason for, for being pessimistic and, and bitter about her condition. But we know from the last verse of chapter 1 and the first verse now of chapter 2 that the means to filling her emptiness to overflowing are already in place by the marvelous providence of God. But you see, like any good story, we're, we're given these hopeful notes and then we're kind of left hanging to build the suspense and to allow the plot to develop. It's as though the author is saying to us here, but God is at work. His, his hand is all over this. Just watch and see. And so now with the stage set, the dialogue begins. Ruth asks permission of Naomi to go and glean in a field. She, she wants to go and collect grain that they might have something to eat. And she is relying upon the provision that we read a few moments ago in Deuteronomy chapter 24, which says, when you, when you reap uh, your harvest in your field, you forget a sheaf in your field, don't go back for it. It's, it's for the sojourner, the fatherless, the widow. <laughs> there was, of course, another law that permitted these same individuals to, to gather grain along the outskirts of the field. And the ground of this law, the reason the Lord commanded Israel to do this, is because you were once in a land as slaves where no one made any provisions for you. You were once needy. You were once helpless. And I came to you and I showed you mercy and compassion. I provided for you in your need. And so now I'm commanding you to do this. And so in verse 3, she set out and she went to glean in the fields uh, after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. And did you catch that? I tried to emphasize it for us. She just so happened to come to the field belonging to the man who could change their lives forever. And the Hebrew here is particularly emphatic in highlighting the seeming coincidence of this event. By chance, she chanced upon the field belonging to Boaz is the way we could, we could translate it. By happenstance, she happened to come to the field that belonged to, to Boaz. What a stroke of luck, we might say today. But of course, luck has nothing to do with it. God is on the move. God is at work, working out his sovereign will through these ordinary events that seem from our human point of view to be completely random. So just think about the chain of circumstances that all had to line up in order for this to take place. First of all, Naomi and Ruth had to return to Bethlehem and Judah at the time of the barley harvest. Then Ruth had to happened to stumble upon the very field that belonged 
to a man who could fulfill the Leveret marriage law, and she had to come at the particular time when, guess who, just so happened that day to be checking in on his fields, none other than Boaz himself. And this is all set, you see, in deliberate contrast to Naomi's commentary on the sovereignty of God in her life at the close of chapter 1. Now, remember how Naomi read God's ways in her life. In her bitterness, God was sovereign, but not good. All power, but no mercy. God, to her, was someone who is arbitrary, unjust, someone who had been harsh and hard towards her. That's how she reads her life. God's in control, but he's dealt so bitterly with her. But here in chapter 2, you see, we get to see things as they really are and not how Naomi misread them. God is at work in the details of their lives for their good. And so this seemingly random decision to glean in this particular field, on this particular day, at this particular time will prove to have lifelong significance for Naomi and Ruth. Indeed, a significance that carries on to this very day. A significance that runs through the Old Testament, through the New Testament, to this very day. That this Moabite woman found herself in the field belonging to a man by the name of Boaz. And it's something Ruth and Naomi could have never anticipated because God's ways, you see, are past finding out. And because he is sovereignly working out all things according to the counsel of his inscrutable will to the, plan, uh, to the praise of his glorious grace. And so here is, I think, a great truth for living the Christian life. It's understanding that, that there are no insignificant details. The most seemingly insignificant events in our lives can have enormous implications, seismic implications. There are no throwaway moments. We we can know that God's book uh, has been written for every one of the days of our lives. They've been ordained for us, before us, before one of them comes to pass. And the Lord is bringing his purposes to pass as year succeeds to year. And so, so we know that, that seemingly random things, the happenstances that happen to us, the chance events, that they may prove to have significance for the glory of God and the good of his people in ways that we could have never possibly imagined. Let me just give you an example of that in, in my own life. I think I've shared this story with, with some of you before in another context, but when I was in college, I started out my undergrad studies at Lancaster Bible College, and uh, I got a text message, a random text message from a, a young guy that I knew asking if I would like to meet a girl who was attending a college about 20 minutes down the road. So she was new to the area, didn't know anybody, asked if I would like to meet her. It just so happened during that time that I was uh, encountering what we call Reformed theology for the first time, um, which is simply biblical theology. And I had all kinds of questions, and it just so happened that this young lady had grown up in a PCA church and had been you know, well-taught by her parents, and her 
pastor and had a lot of the answers to the questions that I was asking. And um, it wasn't long, by the this is Kelsey, you guys know, okay, you're tracking with me? Okay. And it wasn't long before we were planning a life together and I decided to finish my studies at Geneva College and she came back to Pittsburgh to finish her studies. And I eventually joined the church that she grew up in and decided to go to RPTS, the seminary in Pittsburgh, in order that I could stay in the Pittsburgh area and uh, become an intern at, at that local PCA church. And after two years of seminary, that's when Kelsey and I are really starting to think, okay, what, what's going to happen when I'm done with seminary? I've only got one year left. And it just so happened at that time period when we were beginning to stress that the Lord opened up an opportunity here at Trinity Presbyterian Church in Johnstown. You think about that. Um, marriage, three kids, a call to ministry in a place that is near and dear to my heart, and I never imagined living in Johnstown again in my life. All of that, the result of a seemingly insignificant text message received one night. There are no insignificant details in the Christian life. This is, I think, a precious truth, full of comfort for the people of God. Perhaps especially when we are struggling with, with the issue of guidance in our lives. You know, we try to anticipate what's going to happen next. We worry about tomorrow. We worry about our futures. We're unsure what to do next. So we plan and we strategize. But the reality is the future is out of our control. That's not to say that we shouldn't make plans. That's not what I'm saying. But sometimes we stress and fret about how we're going to be prepared. You know, we want to make ends meet, for example, and we don't often know what to do. And it's here that Ruth, I think, is so helpful. She and Naomi had no idea how they were going to make ends meet. How are they going to put food on the table? They have no long-term survival plan. But Ruth, here's Ruth, the new believer. So what, what does she do? Think about this carefully with me. She can't see a year down the line. She can't even think about tomorrow. She has to think about getting bread on the table today. And <clears throat> so what does she do? She follows the pattern laid out in the word of God for someone in her situation. For the widow and sojourner in the land. She has no access to some kind of additional special revelation from the Lord. She's not looking for some special word from God to tell her directly what to do. She simply follows the course scripture lays out for her. She does the next thing, the next best thing that she knows to do in obedience to the clear precepts of the word of God and the sovereign God into whose hands she has committed her life works out these things according to his good purposes. See, there's such a lesson, I think, about the providence of God for the Christian life. You don't need to know about tomorrow or next week or next year. You need to know how God would have you live today. You need to attend to the clear teaching and guidance of Scripture. The book of Ruth is teaching us to attend to the Scriptures, to do your duty today and trust the whole weight of your future into the hands of God who governs all things in His grace and wisdom for the good of those who love Him. So learn to trust the providence of God for your future and do the next thing and quiet faithfulness today. There's a lesson about the providence of God. 
Secondly, and, and, and uh, much more briefly, I hope, uh, the provision of God in verses 14 through 17. So in verse 4, Boaz arrives in, in the field and he greets his men. He's described earlier as, uh, as a worthy man. That's a lame translation. <laughs> um, that same word is used in Judges chapter 6 to describe Gideon, where he's described as a, a mighty man of the valor, a warrior. Now, Boaz is not being depicted in the book of Ruth as a mighty military man. No, Boaz, Boaz is great chiefly because of his character, because of who he is. He's a man to emulate. And as we'll see more and more as we work through the book of Ruth, that Boaz in his life is, is pointing beyond himself to someone greater. But as he talks with his foreman, there's this young woman in the field gleaning with the others, and he doesn't know who she is, so he asks his foreman, and his foreman says she's the, she's the Moabite girl that everybody's been talking about, the one that came back with Naomi. She came and asked to glean in the field. I gave her permission, and man, she, she has not stopped working since the morning, except for a very brief time. It appears that Ruth, like Boaz, is a person of character. Boaz takes notice. And so in verses 8 and 9, he, he calls her over. He tells her that she, she doesn't need to look for any other field to glean in than his. And that she doesn't need to worry about um, getting too close behind the laborers in the field. He, he ensures her physical safety. In fact, she's free to drink from the water that has been drawn by the men for Boaz's workers. You see, he's treating Ruth as though she were a member of his own household. Uh, he's, he's providing her with, with food and drink and protection. <coughs> and later that day, at dinner time, Boaz invites Ruth to come and sit and eat with the workers. Uh, and once she's, once she's out of earshot, after she's had her fill with some left over... He, he says in verse 15, with these careful instructions, let her glean even among the sheaves. Don't rebuke her. He, he's ensuring that she is able to gather enough and more for herself and for Naomi. Now, if you look at the exchange in verses uh, 10 through 13, you'll, you'll see, I think, the key to understanding the significance of all of this. And why, why is Boaz being so kind and generous here, it is much more than Boaz trying to impress a pretty girl. Uh, Ruth comes in verse 10. Uh, before him, she's overcome with the kindness that has been shown to her. She says, why have I found favor in your eyes? Why have you taken notice of me? I, I'm a foreigner. She, she had set out that morning with some slim hope that she would be given permission to glean along the outskirts of someone's field, enough barley gathered to scrape by for the day. She never expected such kindness, generosity, and, and provision. But Boaz goes on to tell her why he's been generous, why he is showing Ruth such kindness. This is key to get. He, he's, he's heard about her commitment to her mother-in-law, Naomi. He's heard all about how she's left everything to come and live in a land that is not her own. But those are not the chief reasons Boaz shows kindness to Ruth. The chief reason Boaz shows kindness to Ruth is made clear in his words of benediction, the words of blessing that he speaks over Ruth. 
He says, the Lord repay you for what you've done and a full reward be given you by the Lord God of Israel under whose wings you have come to take refuge. She's come to take refuge under the wings of the Almighty. She's placed her hope, her trust in the God of Israel. She has staked everything, her entire life, upon the God of covenant grace. And Boaz has the spiritual eyes to see that. And Boaz is committed to not merely speaking empty benedictions. He is committed to not merely speaking blessing over Ruth's life. He is committed to being a blessing in Ruth's life. And so when the day is finished, verse 17, uh, Ruth is gathered an ephah of barley, you know, almost more than she could carry. She comes staggering home. I, I, this is one of those pictures that I love to imagine in my mind. You picture Ruth after a hard day's work in the field, a little bit dirty, carrying a lot of bar, uh, barley that she can, she can hardly handle, sweat on her brow, but a big smile upon her face. And, and there is gloomy, pessimistic, bitter Naomi. And she looks up, and contrary to her bitter view of God, she sees how the Lord has provided more than she could have ever possibly imagined. We're going to work this out more later, but I want to pause for a quick moment here and see how Boaz is clearly a picture of our Lord Jesus Christ in this book. I think he's meant to teach us about, Boaz that is, he's meant to teach us about the great redeemer of God's people. And that's certainly true here. You know, here, here is Ruth coming to take refuge under the wings of the Almighty. And, and Boaz does more than speak empty benedictions, just as when we come to take refuge in the Almighty and trust in the greater Boaz, the Lord Jesus Christ. He himself doesn't speak empty words of blessing to us, but rather he himself is the one by whom blessing upon blessing upon blessing is poured out upon the people of God. It's more than we could ever ask or think. What we see happen here is all the more wonderfully true in the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember the story of uh, uh, the feeding of the 5,000 when you have this huge swarm of people coming out to listen to Jesus, to hear Jesus teach. They've come out a long distance, but... Uh, Everyone's forgotten to bring a packed lunch. And uh, people are getting hungry. And all there is is five loaves of bread and two fish. What does Jesus do? Does he send them away? No, by the power of the Spirit, he supernaturally multiplies the food that's there and he provides for everyone's needs. You know, and not just to you know, hold them over. He provides an abundance, and there are leftovers, aren't there? Jesus is a bottomless, endless supply of blessing to all who come to him. See, no one has ever come in faith to Jesus and, and been sent away empty. And the lesson of Ruth's ephah is the same lesson as the 12 baskets of leftovers. He, he doesn't just meet your needs. He is more than you will ever need. There's more grace, more blessing than you could ever imagine in Jesus Christ. There is 
super abounding provision for you in the God of grace in our Lord Jesus Christ. But the reality is some of you live with fear about tomorrow because deep down you're not quite sure that Jesus is up to the task of meeting your deepest heart needs. Some of you aren't really sure if you can trust Christ to provide, and so you look to other sources. Ruth's story is here to tell you that he can and he will, if, like Ruth, you have taken refuge under the wings of the Almighty. He can and he will. There is more grace in him than there is need in you. And so the providence of God the provision of God, and very briefly here, the pursuit of God. Verses 18 through 23 here. Ruth staggers home. You know, Naomi's full of surprise. She asks, where have you been? What, what field were you gleaning in? Who, whose field was it? You know, better Naomi is altogether unprepared for the abundant provision of God. Ruth tells her it was Boaz's field, and, and you can see the light bulb go on. You can see this idea flash in her mind, and she starts to scheme. She, she says, let's see, verse 20, May he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness is not forsaken, the living or the dead. And then the man is a close relative of ours. He's one of our kinsmen redeemers. The word is goel, someone who can fulfill the requirements of the leveret laws, a close relative who can step in and take care of the widow and perpetuate the family line and family inheritance. And so Naomi says, you know, keep, keep gleaning in his fields and let's just see where this goes. She wants to play matchmaker. And sadly, we'll see that Naomi is willing to make compromises in order to get what she thinks is best for herself and for Ruth. But as she sets out... Um, to set up this romance between Ruth and Boaz. Behind that, what I, what I want us to see today is, do you see that all the while, God has been pursuing Naomi. God has been pursuing Naomi's heart. Note the contrast here with the last time Naomi spoke in uh, chapter 1, at the end of chapter 1, with what she says here. Before, it was all bitterness. The Lord, she says, made her very bitter. The Lord has worked calamity in her life. God was responsible for all of the bad things that had happened to her. But now she's beginning to see things differently. She speaks, did you notice, of the kindness of the Lord not deserting her. She she sees at last the hand of God at work in grace. Whereas it was before it was all calamity. Now she's ready to speak of the kindness of the Lord. You see, God is in pursuit of Naomi, who has, who has drifted away. <coughs> Thomas Watson, a Puritan, uh, some of you will be familiar with, said, uh, said this, Grace dissolves and liquefies the soul, causing a spiritual thaw. Isn't that a great, isn't that a great statement? Uh, grace dissolves and liquefies the soul, causing a spiritual thaw. That's what's happening in Naomi's heart. There's a spiritual thaw as the, as the warmth of divine chesed, God's covenant love and grace and faithfulness 
begins to melt her heart. The great seeker, the great pursuer of the hearts of God's people, the great pursuer of your heart is the Lord God himself. But some of you have, have, like Naomi, perhaps drifted or are drifting away. Some of you have allowed bitterness to creep into your heart and poison your trust in Christ. But you see, the Lord has never stopped showing you his kindness. He, he wants your heart for himself and he is at work calling you, calling you even now in his word to come back to him who, who loves you and has provided for you in his grace beyond anything you could have imagined. He wants to affect a spiritual thaw in your heart. And so, dear friend, I wonder how you will respond to the overtures of God's grace today. And so three lessons from this story, the, the providence of God. You can, you can trust God with your life. The provision of God, there is abundant grace for you in Jesus Christ. And the pursuit of God, the Lord wants your heart. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for this wonderful story. We thank you uh, for your sovereign, wise, and good providence in our lives, for your abundant provision of grace for us in our Lord Jesus Christ, for showing us such kindness in the gospel. And we thank you that you are the great pursuer of our hearts, and we pray now that your word would be at work in our lives, and it we would respond to it as you would have us. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.